Welcome to Persisters, an all-female live show and podcast hosted by Beth Rowe and produced by Alex Kern. Each week, we'll play you a piece from our live show followed by an interview between the performer and us, Beth and Alex. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at PersistersLA. Hi, everyone. I'm Diana, um, and I just wrote this cookbook called Jap, the Cook of the Food of Swatow and the Dioju Diaspora. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it came to be and read you a little, little snippet from it. Um, so the seeds for this book were planted on a trip that I took two years ago, which was actually my honeymoon uh, with my husband, Rob, who's here. Um, and we went to go visit my family in China. So I was born in China, but I grew up mostly in the States, but my extended family still lives there. And we went to go see both my mom's side, which has moved around a lot over the generations, and my dad's side, which has stayed in this one place for decades and maybe even centuries, which is just a foreign concept to me because I've spent my whole life moving around. Um, and it was also fascinating, you know, to talk to my cousins who are now adults too, and learn what their lives are like staying in this one place surrounded by family. Um, so we spent a few days there uh, with my cousins, my aunts and uncles, and my grandma um, in this city called Swatow in southern China, uh, where everyone is very opinionated on where to get the best noodle soups, how you should steam a fish perfectly, which markets have the freshest vegetables and which seafood, and we were thoroughly stuffed by the time that we had to leave to go on to our next destination. Um, and as we headed out, my cousin and his wife offered to drive us to the airport, so they took us. Um, and on the way there, we talked about what life was like in China, what life was like in America, um, what, would it was, what it was like to stay in one spot, what it was like to move around. And I asked them, would you ever live somewhere else? Would you move away from Swatow? And they immediately were like, of course not. Why would we? They would be happy to travel to other parts of the world and you know, see the scenery or whatever, but after a few days, they would start to really miss the food from Swatow. How could they live without it? What a question to ask. After considering another second, though, my cousin's wife was like, well, if you forced us, I guess we could live in Thailand. <laughs> um, so it turns out that they had just vacationed there and had a fabulous time lounging on the beaches and eating on the streets and in restaurants and driving little motorbikes all over the hills. Um, and they said that they could even get by speaking their own language to the locals. And I was like, I must have misheard that. That can't be right. Uh, just to take a step back, my family there does not speak Mandarin, which I would assume would be the international Chinese language, right? Um, my mom doesn't speak Mandarin because she uh, doesn't speak Swatownese, which is what they speak. She speaks Mandarin, so that's what my family spoke in our household growing up. Um, I had never really given any thought to the Swatow language, but now that my cousin was saying it was basically Thai, I was sure that I misunderstood um, and wanted to ask more, but we were already at the airport, and it was time for us to get on a plane to Singapore. Singapore, I had wanted to visit for so long. It's, in my opinion, one of the best places to eat in the world, and I had dreamed for years before our trip about all the food that we'd order from the hawker stalls. Um, has anyone seen Crazy Rich Asians? <laughs> so, you know, that, like, really food porny scene in the hawker center, they're ordering, like, the best, like, satay and noodle soups and everything. We basically spent five days there doing that, <laughs> and it was amazing. Um, and somehow, all of my lusting over photos for years before going didn't actually set me up for disappointment. The food was somehow both lighter and more deeply flavored and way better than I had ever imagined. And I knew from my extensive research that I needed to seek out certain famous dioju dishes, like fishball noodle soup and bakute, something called char kway tiao. And um, after eating all these, I seriously proposed to Rob that we should just move to Singapore at that point. <laughs> um, and when we came back to LA, I knew that I needed to learn more about this cuisine, the food that we had just eaten. And also, what was that thing my cousin said about the Thai language? I should look into that too. 
And when I did, the pieces all fell into place. Um, turns out the questions were incredibly connected. So the first part of my book title, The Food of Swatow, is what I thought that my cookbook would be about, the food of my dad's hometown, sharing this food that I thought was very underappreciated and underrepresented in America. Um, but the second part was a surprise to me, the food of the Dioju diaspora. So Dioju is the city right next to Swatow, but it's called Taozo in Mandarin, which is what I spoke. Um, and that's pretty far from Dioju, the word. But geographically, it's separated by only a 30-minute car ride. Um, and it shares pretty much the same culture and the same cuisine as Swatow. Uh, but of course, as a kid growing up in New Jersey who was more interested in Lunchables and pizza and dropping out of Chinese school, I had never concerned myself with Southern Chinese geography or history. And so as an adult, I didn't draw the connection between my own heritage and the Dioju one I kept reading about in food blogs. So as it turns out, though my family has stayed in Swatow forever, a lot of others have left the Dioju and Swatow region, which is collectively called Dio Swa, Dioju, Swatow, Dio Swa, um, over the past few centuries, and they ended up all over Southeast Asia, um, but in especially large numbers in Thailand and Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Um, and wherever they landed in search of a better life, they brought their language and their food with them food that included some of those exact foreign Singaporean dishes uh, that I was so excited to try. But that food didn't stay static, of course, because food never does. It changes wherever it goes. Um, and so I'm going to share a little bit from my cookbook about the evolution of char kway teow. So I don't know if you can see it, but here's a photo of char kway teow. <laughs> um, Chai Kui Diao, translated literally, is just stir-fried rice noodles. In Dio Sua, it's a dish prepared much like a lardier version of the Cantonese chow fun you can find in even the smallest American towns. A Dio Sua chef will fry fresh rice noodles with veggies, seafood, or meat, with some restrained seasonings in a searing hot, lard slicked wok. In Southeast Asia, however, Chai Kui Diao transformed into an entirely different beast. According to some stories, this evolved as a delicious belly-filling way for merchants to use up their unsold wares at the end of a market day. Today, the old-school versions you'll find in Singapore and Malaysia include flat rice noodles, round egg noodles, cockles, Chinese sausage, shrimp, fish cake, bean sprouts, garlic chives, egg, and if you're lucky, not just lard, but also crispy fried cubes of pork fat, all tossed with chili paste and dark and light soy sauces. Reader. I took my first bite of this magic combination at a crowded hawker center, surrounded by Singaporean office workers on their lunch breaks. Time slowed. The sweltering tropical heat subsided, and I entered a noodle-induced bliss. <laughs> Nothing existed except for me and the plate of noodles handed over by the wizened hawker stall uncle, who had perfected his noodle-frying ballet over decades of practice. It was then that I discovered serenity is best delivered on a pink plastic plate. So while there is a heavy Dioswa influence in Singapore, I knew I'd have to travel to Thailand, which I learned is home to the largest overseas Dioswa community in the world, to really get a sense of how Dioswa influences evolved and were integrated into other cuisines and cultures over, around the world and over time. And when I finally arrived at Bangkok's Chinatown, Yawarat, months later, I finally understood what my cousin was talking about. There is Dioswa being spoken on every street and Dioswa restaurants on every block. It was basically a little Dioswa. And I ate so many amazing Dioswa-rooted but Thai-inflected things on the streets and family restaurants and in banquet halls there. But perhaps the most unique thing I ate was from a McDonald's. <laughs> Let me explain with another little snippet. And this is from a recipe for Orni hand pie. Um, you might be asking, what is Orni? And Orni is perhaps the most iconic of all Dioswa desserts. Its usual translation is yam paste, but that fails to capture the unique combination of flavors and ingredients that make up the most traditional variation. Taro pureed with lard and sugar, steamed pumpkin cubes, fragrant shallot oil, and candied ginkgo nuts. Now, while I've sampled and enjoyed many authentic iterations of Orni, 
my blasphemous secret is that none brought me as much joy or delight as the Orni-inspired deep-fried taro ginkgo hand pie that scalded my tongue under the golden arches in a Bangkok mall. <laughs> sure, fried dough always has an unfair advantage, but what really tickled me was that the thought was the thought that one of the most traditional of all Dioswa foods had been reincarnated in Bangkok as a bastardized version of the most American of all American desserts, apple pie. What a time to be alive. <laughs> um, so that's it for me. But if you want to learn more about these recipes, come talk to me afterwards. Um, thank you. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome back to First Sisters. You're here with Beth and Alex and our very good friend Diana Zung. 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 Well, that's the Mandarin way of saying it. Oh, okay. But the the like English way of saying it is Zang, which is what I usually get. <laughs> Zang. Okay. Yeah, I like yeah. how you say it with just like you've lost hope. Just <laughs> Zang. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Jersey, so like <laughs> <laughs> it was always Zang. Where where in New Jersey are you from? Um, I grew up mostly in like central Jersey, hopped around a bit, but I went to Bruce Springsteen's high school. So beautiful freehold, New Jersey. Um, yeah, before that I was in Maryland and Oregon and China before that. So you're, you're kind of, we're, we're similar in that. Like we were kind of from a lot of different places. Yeah. Are you an army brat? No, so my dad was like getting his like masters and stuff in Oregon, and then wow. he got a job in Maryland, and then we were there for a few years, and then he switched um, to a job in Jersey. So we just kind of followed him. Got it. And what yeah. is he? Is he a teacher? Is he a uh, scientist? He does or? like stuff with like computer chips. Oh, he's he's quite... a genius. <laughs> That's the word. It's it's very complicated, okay. and I don't understand it. And I've like, asked him many times what he does, and I still don't understand. He works for the CIA. <laughs> Maybe He's I'm convinced my uncle worked for the CIA. We all talk about it, really? um, and he he always just like laughs it off. And we're like, mm, you disappeared for a year or two. You lived in the mi- Middle East. You oh, were like, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But so your dad works for the CIA. Cool. Mm-hmm. My Very grandfather nice. worked for the FBI for 25 years. Wow. Okay, Diana, we had... Uh, so in the show, you read a few stories and, re- and uh, that are also recipes in your book, which we are both holding right yes. now. Yes. Oh, wow. It's really beautiful. It's, it's so beautiful. beautiful book. Oh, thank um, you. The pictures are beautiful. Everybody should go out and get one. And the title of the book is Ja. 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 Yeah. So um, Ja in the language of the region that I'm writing about, I wrote about, um, means eat. But I guess it kind of has like a double entendre because in Mandarin, um, which is not this language, uh, jia means like home. So I feel like it works nicely. Um, But jia means eat, and it's in the language that my grandparents spoke on my dad's side. Um, So like I never learned this language even though I lived with them for a year when Mm. I was three. Oh, interesting. Um, and because like my mom doesn't speak this language, it's called Dioswa um, or Tsao Sanhua in Mandarin. Wow. Um, and it's like entirely different from Mandarin. So when wow. I was a kid, I spoke Mandarin because my mom didn't speak Dioswa. So like me, my mom, my dad, we'd speak Mandarin at home. Um, but when my parents left for America and I like went to stay with my dad's side of the family, like my grandparents only spoke Dioswa and like all of my extended family would speak it and I refused to learn it. Um, so on all my trips going back to visit them, like the only word I really understood was jack. Cause like everyone would constantly be like, eat, keep eating. <laughs> like wow, that's how you so showed funny. love. Like you force people to eat. How many different languages are, I, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I realized that, that there were that many different languages. Yeah. Well, I think we like call them dialects. Sure. Um, but like, they're really not that related to each other. Um, like my dad would talk about how when he went to college in Beijing, like he'd get letters from his family, you know, in Southern China, I guess to back up, this is like, this is a region in Southern China on the border of Guangdong and Fujian provinces, like right across from Taiwan. Um, So when he left the South to go to Beijing for college, he would get letters from his family and like his friends couldn't understand them because like the language construction was just so different, Hmm. like grammatically. And of course, it sounds entirely different. Um, So, yeah, I think like 
in the West, we think of all these dialects as, you know, all part of Chinese. And like, yeah, there's like a standard writing system, but the way that the language is constructed is very different um, within each dialect. I actually Mm. don't know all that much about languages, Mm. but I'm pretending I do. (laughs) Hey, it sounded good to me. So wait, so you were born in China? Yeah. Okay. Born in China. Where in China? I was born in a city called Sanjiang because... um, both of my parents worked for like a, an oil company there that my maternal grandpa also worked for. And that's how my parents met. Um, they worked meeting at an oil company? Yeah. Yeah. So like oh, the oil company so was like the the biggest thing in town. And yeah, very romantic meeting spot. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very, it's like kind of like Silkwood, but very different. So I'm thinking like nuclear plants. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's like nuclear plants and oil plants. Different. Very different. Yeah. But, you know. But before you have, you were kind of, just to, as like a little bit of background, you've, you are a like a jack of all trades because before you wrote this book and before you started designing beautiful plates, you were doing what? I was in public health for a while. So I studied economics and sustainable development in undergrad, um, got interested in public health, um, worked for a few years in that after college, went back to get my master's in public health, and then like returned to public health for like a year or so before I was like, you know, I like really love food. I love using food as like a lens to like understand different cultures. And maybe it's about time I start looking into my own heritage and understanding where I come from and stuff. And like, if not now, when? So I decided to leave the world of public health and self-publish a cookbook. Wow. How long ago was that? So that was like about two years ago now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so along the way, um, I started Guanim. Uh, the plate company that you mentioned. and yeah. Okay, so I don't know about the plate company. Okay, so open, we're going to open, you guys will have plenty of photos on. Yes, um, we will. If you open the first page, those are all of her plates. What? So those, um, like the little guys. Oh, come on. So you we're looking this at one this? Too? Not that one. Okay. The, we're like little. <sighs> sure, like sure, sure. Of course, Alex went plate. right to the chartreuse yellow. Sorry, kind of one. I love chartreuse yellow. We all know this. I would love to make secret. a chartreuse yellow plate You will one future. day. You will. Um, I'm actually mm. thinking about making like textiles, hopefully. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. Oh, that would be cool. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so you started making. Kind of came out of the cookbook because I. I mean, yeah, I, it never crossed my mind that I'd be like designing home goods. It's just like, she's got a line of power tools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but I was writing this cookbook and I was taking photos for it and I was looking for like interesting plates to use in the photos sure. and I'd go to like my Asian supermarket and they're like the same few designs. Like you get like the blue and white, like Japanese bowls or like Mm. the melamine, like red designs with like the Chinese characters. And that seemed to be pretty much it. Mm. Um, Even though we live in like a very heavily Asian area, Mm. right? Like SoCal, um, it still seemed like the the options were kind of limited. And I was like, I follow so many amazing Asian American illustrators and artists online and they do amazing work. And I'd love to see like their designs on some plates and be able to use that. So yeah. it's like, well, I'm going to like look into how hard it is to make some plates. It can't be that hard. And it took me like over a year to get them made. So it turned out to be a little harder than I expected. Um, but at the end of it, I have a collection of four plates. Two oh of them goodness. I ended up designing myself. And um, they're all they're all like a play on chinoiserie, um, you know, like European interpretation of like Asian designs. And yeah. so they're kind of like riffing on that because it's now like Asian Americans, you know, reinterpreting chinoiserie and all of the plants that we include in the four designs are non-native species of California. So it's all like plants that you think of as like very Californian, but they actually were all brought here from oh, elsewhere. That's interesting. It's wow. like the same thing. Like with palm, the thing that I love is that palm trees are not native to Southern California. Yeah. They were brought in to make I it look like paradise. Know yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Only that's like why like, one native palm. That you think like the what? fan palm is the only native. Where species. did they bring them from? Hawaii. Somewhere I don't know, but that's why you see like those super super tall ones in mm-hmm. Beverly Hills, say mm-hmm. like or e- anywhere around here on the east side. Mm-hmm. They're so tall, and they're to the point of just being dangerous because <laughs> they've just been they've been there since they were planted. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's how trees work. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, they're they're like I don't. 
like you're in brand new territory for these tall. Yeah. And I think they're like trees. very expensive to maintain because mm-hmm. yeah, they're not native to the area. Huh. So it costs like many, many thousands of dollars every year to like, I think I read like one of the big palms on like the Stanford campus costs like a hundred thousand dollars a year or something to maintain. Wow. That's bananas. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. Someone fact check me. So but you design like the plates and then you send those like templates out to uh, someone who makes the plates. Yeah. So okay. I, I like reached out to some um, artists and illustrators that I admired and uh, got the designs and created two of them myself. And then I was looking for um, like ceramic decorating companies, uh, mm. which I thought would not be all that hard to find, especially in L.A., which has like a thriving manufacturing industry of all sorts. Mm. But I called up like literally dozens of companies in SoCal and no one still does this. I think there used to be a much bigger like ceramics industry and ceramics decorating industry like a few decades ago. Mm. And it's since moved mostly overseas, like to Asia and also to Europe. So I ended up working with this family-run company on the East Coast. So hmm. it's been challenging to have to, you know, get samples by mail, wait for them, and then be sure. like, you know, yeah. we need to tweak this. And so it took a long time, but I'm really happy with how they came out. They're beautiful. They are. Thank and it's you. so true. I mean, these photos are gorgeous, um, but so much of it, you know, in terms of aesthetic, is like you want a plate that will make your, that will complement the food, Mm -hmm. right? That's part of the whole experience. And so that's, I don't know. So I don't know. What's the word ambitious of you to be like, well, I got to make, I got to make my plates, (laughs) you know? It's it's kind of like, wow. I mean, it's not surprising to me that that's how you came to making Sheen Mosri because like, it, it's like it, it's the same way that we are when there's audio problems. Gotta I'm not it yourself, that it's, baby. it's just like mm-hmm. it's just okay. Well, that's not the way I want it to be. So now I have to learn a new skill. Yeah, and that's kind of been. I feel like that's been a little bit of my journey in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, where it's mm-hmm. like I came here not planning to be a writer. I came here not planning to be a producer. Not that's planning, true. and it was like. It's like, okay, well, whatever, if you want to get something done or if you want to get something made, you're going to have to learn all the skills to do that because no one's going to do it for you. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's like something in the water here where like you move to LA and like you see everyone else doing all these like really creative things, doing all these things that they want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I feel like it was less about me being like, I'm going to be really ambitious and try to like do all this stuff. Cause I feel like if it was already there in the world, I would have just used it, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was like, I, I didn't see it. So if I want it, I'm sure there are at least a few other people in the world who want it. So sure. why not make it? I think it? it's also being like your word with your vision, right? Mm-hmm. Being honest to what you want to create and not kind of like keeping those standards. How long have you been here? Have you lived here for um, About three years now. Oh, okay. Yeah. And where were you before? So before I was in grad school in Boston. Okay. Yeah. And then before that, I was in SF for a few years. Okay. And then before that, I was in college in New York. Okay. Wow. So you've yeah. lived in all the big cities. So yeah, we've like driven literally like the perimeter of the U.S. Because so my now husband, Rob, um, and I were living in SF and... So we decided to road trip over to Boston by taking like the great northern route. So we drove up to Seattle and then crossed oh, all the way cool. over to Boston. And then on our way back to California, we decided to close the loop and come back via the southern route. Cool. I've always wanted to do that and I still haven't. It's on the list. It's a lot of fun. Although yeah. about like, I think we took about like three weeks or so, maybe a little more oh, each wow. time. And each time like at about the two week mark, you're like, Mm, we should speed this up. Yeah. Like, can we just get in a plane now? Yeah. <laughs> I did mine in 11 days. I went straight oh to the middle. Oh, nice. And then middle America, baby. Did um, Vail for a weekend oh. with friends in Denver and then did two days in Vegas. Amazing. Girl. Yeah. It was Girl. fun. Did you find that, I mean, those cities are all very different, especially if you're a creative person. Mm. Did you feel like moving to LA, you could feel, I mean, you just spoke on it, but that kind of your creativity flourished. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, like you guys are (laughs) part of like the creative fabric of the city. Right. And I feel like, um, 
I mean, this is true for me and I'm sure of many other people too, where you just like absorb the energy of the place where you are and of like the other people Mm -hmm. around you. And, um, yeah, I feel like every city that I lived in was like creative in a different way. Um, but yeah, for sure. Moving from Boston to LA was a huge shift because Boston is very much about like the research and, you know, like technological advances and being in like the public health world there was about like medical research and stuff and kind of following like the planned route for yourself of like, you know, moving up the hierarchy. And Mm -hmm, so it was a lot of like focusing on how to get to the next step in your career and in your life and whatever. Um, And I feel like once I moved to LA, like we have a lot of friends here who are like musicians and artists and Mm -hmm. carving their own paths. And, um, I feel like just being here and seeing that they could make it work for themselves was incredibly inspiring and eye opening. Cause it was just, it wasn't really something that I thought would be possible for me. You know, like when I was younger, I'd be like, Oh, like those cool, like creative people, like (laughs) making these cool lives for themselves. Like it just didn't feel like something that I could attain for whatever reason. Like if, especially if you came from a a family where it was more about like the same, like the research and Mm -hmm. the technological background Mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, yeah, a lot of, you know, Asian immigrant children have the experience of, you know, being pushed to into one of the few prestige careers because, you know, like our parents' generation was all about like, they lived through like the cultural revolution if they came from China, you know, and like, their families were starving. So like what, what they're focused on is like securing, you know, a roof over your head and like a steady paycheck and healthcare, not necessarily like, how do you thrive as a human being? Mm -hmm, Um, so I feel very lucky that, you know, I'm in a place where I can think beyond just, you know, how do I make it to the next year or whatever? Um, and I can actually start thinking about what kind of life do I want to build for myself? Uh, so you're, you have, uh, um, a launch party coming up for your I book. I do. I'm very excited. Yes. Tell us. Tell um, it's uh, Sunday, October 14th at 5.30 p.m. at LA's only cookbook store. Um, it's an amazing little shop. It's called Now Serving in Far East Plaza in Chinatown. Oh, cool. Oh gosh, I didn't even know. Oh, yeah. They, um, I think they opened up shop just over a year ago. I think they just oh. had their one-year anniversary like a week or two ago. Um, and it's an amazing space. They have cookbook authors come through all the time and do events where they bring like food and drink and talk about their books. So I'm going to be doing that. And I'm so excited because, you know, I've gone to events there in the past and, um, I'm, I just like love the space and what they're doing for the community. Um, the owners, Ken and Michelle, I think they've talked about it. Like they want it to be like a record store for, you know, like food people, like you go and like look at the collection. Cause they also stock like really beautiful, like kitchenware and um I think some like apparel and stuff too so it's just like a really beautiful space and you can just like spend hours in there looking at everything that is so cool I'm so excited so you'll be presenting the book yeah will there be food there will be food I'm still deciding what I'm gonna be making um, but I'll definitely bring food and drink um and I'm very excited to be chatting with Oliver Wong the, um, he's a professor at CSU Long Beach in sociology, um, and he, you may have heard his like music reviews on NPR. He's like a scholar on so many things, uh, music, hip-hop, Asian-American oh culture, um, yeah, clearly sociology in general. Someone um, you want to have a conversation with. Certainly. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this book turned out to be... Like, I really thought it would be about the food of just, like, my extended family in this one part of China. And it really turned out to be more of a book about the food of this people that ended up, like, all over the world, which I had no idea about. Um, So it was... It was like a crazy journey of discovery for myself. And it's funny meeting other people who are from this culture because I feel like I'm one of the very few people in the U.S. that came directly from this part of China Mm. um, because most people uh, actually left that part of China like decades or centuries ago to go to Southeast Asia. And so they're they're in the U.S. now after, you know, like a pit stop in Southeast Asia. So they're like multi hyphenates. Mm. Um, Like there are a lot of Gaginang is like what they call each other, like people in this community. It means our own people. Um, Mm. So people who are of Dioswa descent. Um, they're the Gaginan community and 
there are huge communities in like Bangkok, um, in Singapore, in across Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, and there used to be even bigger communities in like Cambodia, Vietnam. But um, after like the wars there, they fled to the U.S. Um, you know, with a lot of war refugees. So a lot of the the restaurants um, that are you know advertised as like Vietnamese or Cambodian. Well, not a lot, but like a certain subsect of them actually also have roots in this part of China. Hmm. Wow. And I had no idea, uh, like why, like I had seen those menus that have like, you know, English, Vietnamese, Chinese, and was just like, they're just catering to, That's you know. what I thought too. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were just catering to like the audience around them. But, um, a lot of those stores actually have like Chinese roots as well. Hmm. And this culture is like kind of a conservative culture in that they're very like, they believe strongly that they're like preservers of like the Tang dynasty culture and stuff. So they like really um, like hang on to their traditions, like drinking tea and um, these recipes. They've, they've certainly changed over time, but wherever they go in the world, they bring like the core recipes with them and um, kind of like share it with the new community that they build up around themselves. Um, So I feel like once, you become attuned to like the markers of a Dioswa community, you can like identify which restaurants are started by people from this region. Hmm. Are there any in LA? Yeah, there are a lot actually. Hmm. Um, if you, let's see. It's off the top of your head. No <laughs> pressure. <laughs> so a lot of like, if you search for like Dioju noodle soups, um, like in the SGV, there are a lot of restaurants that serve that. So there's like, Mackey's in Arcadia, all the Kim restaurants like Kim Ki, Kim Chui. Hmm. I'm not sure I'm doing a great job pronouncing them, but um, basically any restaurant that serves what may look like pho to someone who's not used to it. Which is my favorite. Yeah, isn't it great? Um, But instead of like a beef broth, it's usually made with like a pork and chicken stock um, and maybe with like some dried seafood thrown in and it's topped with like a whole assortment of toppings. So You have your choice of noodles and then you usually have like slices of pork and fish balls and pork balls maybe. And like if you want it, pork liver and bean sprouts and like all this like jumble of goodness on top of it. Um, And you'll see like the little uh, canister of sauces on the side of the table, Mm. like satay sauce and like uh, vinegared jalapenos or serranos. Um, So any restaurant that like specializes in that kind of noodle soup is... There are good chances that they're from this part of China if you go back, like, a few generations. And do you go out to eat a lot? Yeah. I mean, living so close to SGV, like, I'm on the east side of LA, so it's, like, a very short drive now, to go for get. our audience, what does SGV stand for? Oh, SGV is the San Gabriel Valley. That's correct. Um, and it's an amazing restaurant wonderland because it's home to so many uh, fairly recent Chinese immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting time because... Um, well, coming from the East Coast, like a lot of the Chinese restaurants that sprung up there are like older, right? Or not traditionally like the food that you could get that was Chinese food, quote unquote, in America was like Cantonese food and more specifically Taishanese food, which was this mm-hmm. like one village outside of um, Guangdong where a lot of workers came. Um, if you go back like a couple decades or centuries, uh And they came and, like, set up shops, set up restaurants, because that was, like, one of the few things that were available to them to make a living. Um, So that's, like, where the idea of, like, chop suey and, you know, Mm -hmm. like, egg foo young and stuff comes from. It's kind of um, people from this one part of Guangdong, uh, Taishan, coming and adapting their traditional uh, recipes to, like, American tastes. Um, and I feel like that's like the style that kind of proliferated because there's this huge network of like restaurant workers. If you, I think there was an article maybe like a year or two back that talked about, um, how restaurant workers get moved around the country. And it's fascinating because, Hmm. um, if you go to like Manhattan, Chinatown, there are these buses that'll take you like everywhere or will help you get to anywhere. Um, cause they'll help you connect in other cities. Um, but those started as a way to move restaurant workers around from like 
the hubs of like New York and like Boston into like much more suburban areas and even rural areas. Oh, that's so interesting. Chinatown bus. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, like the Boston, New York route, Mm -hmm. I think that was, you know, that started because of restaurant workers. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. And that's like how you end up with like Chinese restaurants and like Fargo, like they just, they're part of this network and they get, I think they typically get moved around after like a few months or something, you know, like they get stationed there for a little bit and then they go back home for a little stretch and then, and then, uh, move on to the next place. How did you know what recipes to include, which ones you wanted to include I guess, yeah, talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, on research, the research that went into creating your... So the book really came about because I was actually on my honeymoon trip, and we were visiting um, my family, both sides of my family in China. And so my mom's side of the family has like moved around a bit um, over the generation. So um, it's not like they're deeply rooted in one place, but my dad's side of the family has like been in this part of China for, for a long time. You know, when I'd go back like every few years as a kid with my family, but I never really appreciated it because, you know, growing up in suburban Jersey, I'm much sure. more concerned about like malls and concerts and stuff, right. and not, of course. you know, about my cultural heritage. Um, so it wasn't until like my more recent trips, like in college and after college, that I'd go back and just really like appreciate the food, the cuisine, the culture there. Um, and so on my honeymoon trip, when we were visiting my dad's side of the family, uh, my husband, Rob, and I like ate incredibly well for the few days that we were there. And I was just like, why isn't this food represented in America? Because like we live, you know, in LA now and like there's, there's so many Chinese people here. And yet I don't think I've heard of like all that many, um, Swat Downies restaurants. Uh, what do you mean by incredibly well? Like, like it was like everyone there is deeply obsessed with food in a way that I think it's hard to imagine in America. Like, it's just like you're born into this culture of like you're constantly thinking about your next meal and like yeah. constantly arguing about who does the best version of what. Hmm. Um, so like, is, every, that, is that because there's it's it's more the food. They're, they're connecting more to obviously like the heritage of the food and where it comes from. And then like, because in the U S it's more of like you choose what you want to connect to in a way. And it's not as much about like having it be personal or having it mm. be familiar or having it be passed down from generation to generation. Like that doesn't really exist here. I yeah. think melting pot. Yeah. Right? I you think that's definitely part of it. And then also I think um, Chinese culture is like not very touchy feely. And, you know, like that's true, like across all of China, like the way that you show love is not to say I love you or give you a hug. It's to like make you something. Ask you like typically the way that you greet someone in China is like you say, have you eaten yet? Um, Because like that's how you show care for someone else. Yeah. So like food in Chinese culture, not just in this part of China, but across all of China, just it's tied to so much more of everything about yourself. You know, like you see food as medicine, you see food as an expression of love. You see food as it's like, I don't know. It's just, there's a much longer tradition of um, tying food into like every aspect of life. It's like a holistic element to it that just doesn't exist here. Yeah. And it's like, I think, you know, in America now it's, more common to like view food as like either like miracle worker or like poison but like in Chinese culture it's much more about like listening to your body and like understanding how it interacts with different foods and different environments and like how to balance that and like small adjustments rather than like placing all your hopes on like one miracle berry or something Mm -hmm. and yeah so when we were in Swatow um we just like went to, you know, like street shacks where there were like amazing bowls of noodle soups and, um, all of these different like rice cakes. Um, and we also went to like these banquet halls that my like aunt and uncle would take us to and eat like the local interpretation of like Northern Chinese food. And it was just like, everything was so delicious and prepared with such care. And like people take such pride in their recipes. Um, and the food there is like, I like to think of it as like almost Californian in its 
approach where the emphasis is on getting like really great ingredients and then like not messing them up. So Mm -hmm. everyone there, like there's someone in the household who goes to like the market, like almost every day. And, you know, you go pick out the best clams or the best looking fish. And like, uh, you go to the butcher and you tell him to like chop up some pork for you for a stir fry. And everyone just like is very intentional about eating. Just like a level of, of detail and care that Mm -hmm. goes into it, which yeah, again, is going back to the like way of expressing how you feel for the people that are about to consume it. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I think about when I have, I don't have a great, I don't think I've eaten Chinese food since I've moved to LA, like maybe once, but I think the times that I have interacted with it, it's not authentic, mm. right? There are so mm-hmm. many places where, I mean, I, or maybe it just gets a bad reputation where you're just like, oh, it's really unhealthy. Or, mm. And then I look through your book and I'm like, these look delicious and healthy. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, there's some stuff that is a dessert or whatever, but yeah. it's it sounds exactly like what you're speaking to. And perhaps I've gotten like the wrong uh, <laughs> understanding of what Chinese food is. Granted, this is a certain region. But, the best yeah. Chinese food that I've had, like the, that I've had, recently was in Vancouver. Mm. Oh, it was just Vancouver's like, had, Chinese food is amazing. It, it was sense. like unbelievable. It was like the best restaurant we could have gone to. It was better than any other, like any kind of like seafood, any kind of Italian food. It was like, really? yeah, it was, and it was interesting. It was different. It was really cool. I forget yeah. the name of it, but it starts with a B and I will tell you later. Yes, I definitely want to wreck for the next time I go. But yeah, Vancouver has amazing Cantonese cuisine because a lot of like the top chefs in Hong Kong actually left Hong Kong for Vancouver. Hmm. Um, like, you know, maybe like a decade or so back. And I'm not sure if maybe they're starting to make their way back now. Um, but yeah, they, they've attracted like top talent from Asia. Um, so the food in Vancouver is just sense. like very innovative and you know, like very high quality and very creative. Um, They've, and they also have a massive Chinatown. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Richmond is like all Chinese, It's like, right? yeah, the whole like center of Vancouver is like Chinatown. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's like, I don't know what the numbers are like, but it's definitely like on par with like SGV, like how we think of, you know, like this massive sure. expanse of, you know, Chinese communities. I feel like that's what like Richmond is. I need your recommendations for San Gabriel Valley. Yeah, oh, yeah, I can oh totally. My goodness. Yeah, all different types of cuisines. It's amazing because with all the recent immigrants, um, I feel like restaurants and SGV, like what you were talking about, like the quote unquote like inauthentic Chinese mm-hmm. food. It, I, I don't know. I have like complicated feelings about the word authentic because like it is authentic. It's authentically Chinese American. Mm, um, sure, but yeah, it That's is cool. typically a lot less healthy than the foods that they were originally based on um, because they're trying to appeal to a wider audience Um, and because like ingredients are more accessible here maybe, you know, than where they came from. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, yeah, so in SGV now, like those restaurants have enough of a customer base from China or from Taiwan or from wherever that they don't have to cater to like American taste. They don't have to modify their dishes. So it's, it's like really exciting Mm -hmm. to eat an SGV because you have these chefs coming directly from all corners of China um, Mm -hmm. and like cooking the food that they know from back home. And like, of course there are like some ingredient changes and stuff, but it's, it's so much truer to like the version that exists in China today than say like, you know, like the Kung Pao chicken that we have compared to the Cantonese version of that. Do you have any, um, any chef, celebrity chef or that you like to follow or whose recipes or. Are you talking like on TV? Whatever, you know, or maybe even if there's a local chef that you really like or yeah, someone who has a cookbook that you were modeling yours after inspired by or short Anthony Bourdain's show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I love cookbooks and like, that's like, you know, part of my motivation for writing one. Um, and I learned so much from Grace Young's cookbook. Um, Mm. she's written a couple of cookbooks on like stir frying and Chinese food. Um, and you know, growing up, my parents are both great cooks and they cooked like every day. Um, so I kind of took it for granted. 
And it wasn't until I left for college and was like, oh, no one's going to cook me Chinese food. Right. And I was like, oh, maybe I should learn how to do it myself. Because growing up, I loved to cook too. But since my parents had Chinese food covered, I was like, I'll learn how to make like Western food. So it wasn't until I left home that I was like, I should really start learning how to like stir fry and like steam fish and stuff. Um, and so it was like during college and the years after that, like I would ask my parents about stuff, but then also I started collecting cookbooks and Grace Young's cookbooks in particular were amazing for like teaching me the fundamentals of stir frying. And, um, she really walks you through like how to season a wok and, Mm. you know, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, she's also written about like all the other ways of cooking too, um, in Chinese cuisine. And then Fuchsia Dunlop has done an amazing job of covering the cuisines of different regions of China Mm. in great detail. Um, And all of her recipes are like very accessible too. And she does just like a really nice job of like writing about her experiences. So I think she was like, I can't remember if this was her first book, um, but she wrote, it was like a combination of like memoir and cookbook um, about her time in Sichuan because she was the first westerner to enroll at this cooking academy there Mm. and so it kind of just like talks about her time there and the hard time she had getting like accepted by like the teachers and being taken seriously by them and stuff and then she also shares some recipes from that time and since then she's covered a bunch of other regions um and then I I really loved Danny Bowen's Mission Chinese Food Cookbook Mm. um for its format I I start out my cookbook with an interview, partly because it was just like so impossibly hard to write an intro that would like cover what this book was supposed to be and then what it became because it's, I mean, Hmm. it's like truly like a global story and I really thought it would be like a very small personal story and like it is, but it kind of expanded into this exploration of you know, like the diaspora. Um, and so, uh, that's like a technique that I definitely borrowed from. Like, Oh, I love this. I didn't see that. Yeah. And I, I just like even more than reading for recipes, I love reading cookbooks for just like the stories in them. Absolutely. Cause it's like, it's not, you're not getting, I think the best kind of cookbooks, it's not just a book of recipes. It's Mm -hmm. like, what's the heart of the story yeah right give me a little bit of the background and then I'm going to be so much more interested in making this food because I know that there's a story and a history behind it yeah completely and I totally believe that like food is like the best lens to like understand a culture through um because it just like it encapsulates so much about how people relate to each other in a given culture. I think that's why you keep, that's why like my, my brain, it's so silly, but I like keep thinking about Anthony Bourdain and the way that you mm-hmm. brought that up. And mm-hmm. it makes this, that's kind of like the, how and like a lot of people in, in the U S came to realize that, or if mm-hmm. they already knew it, it's kind of like a way to like actually like vocalize it and a way sure. to see other Go on a trip and, without going on the trip. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I can't believe he's gone because he was, he had such a unique, singular voice and such a compassion for Mm -hmm. people um, Mm -hmm. that I feel like, yeah, he, while he made like cultures accessible to Americans, um, he like never dumbed it down, you know, like he fully embraced like the complexity of a place and a culture and a people. Totally. I think compassion is the key word there. He's also somebody that was able to like, like men related to him and women related to him because mm-hmm. he was such a badass he's such, yeah. a, such a badass but also like such a like vulnerable human yeah. and mm-hmm. like so um mm-hmm. and such a fighter for women's rights and and mm-hmm. um yeah there was this episode i watched i think it was right after he died the west virginia one i don't know mm-hmm. if you guys saw it yeah and i remember of course being astounded and like surprised that he had a West Virginia episode, but then of course being like, of course he did because mm-hmm. he's trying to like show empathy towards a culture that he is like, I don't know, this is Trump country. Mm-hmm. And it was a really, it was a wonderful insight into a community of people that I went in being like super judgy about. Yeah, And it same. was so awesome to see someone being like, no, that's, if you want to understand someone, that is certainly not the approach to take. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he like did such a great job of mm-hmm. like showcasing 
the many different cultures in America, you know, like completely. Yeah. Just showing all the different, different regional quirks that like you don't think of, you just think of, you know, America is like the coast and like flyover country or whatever. But right. like, there's so much more that we don't examine on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. I have a, a question about, um, like uh, about going forward for you. So you mm-hmm. have this like really interesting cookbook with a, a unique perspective on how you're um, relaying the the recipes and the stories that go along with them. For you, what what do you what do you what do you see as your next venture? Is it is it another book? Is it my is this too soon or is this still like <laughs> the ongoing process? Oh, what a big question. Um, to be totally honest, writing this book took a lot out of me. Like yeah. it was just, it was a process because yeah, between. Is I it mean, really, is it in my, like what I feel like you're going to say as well, you know, I made all the, while taking photos for this book, I realized I didn't really like the camera that I used. I'm building cameras now. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, definitely not going down that route. <laughs> um, oh, wow. But I mean, yeah, writing this book was like, it was hard in that it's like writing a cookbook is a lot about being very rigorous about Mm. your cooking. Um, like in a way that I didn't really, I mean like intellectually I knew it, but like, you know how you don't really understand something until you do it. Um, I think I didn't really appreciate it until I went through the steps of like recipe testing all these recipes. Um, but the way that I like to cook actually is very free form and I love to improvise and like be creative in the kitchen. Um, so writing a cookbook took a lot of like self discipline in that way. Um, and then also it was just like surprisingly vulnerable, right? Like it's like a story about like my life and my family and like these people, like I, I don't know. There were just like so many emotions I went mm-hmm. through writing this book. Um, and also because like, I, I'm still like a little anxious about like how it'll be received by other people in this diaspora, because I, I feel like I come from the minority of people who, you know, didn't experience what it was like to be a Southeast Asian Jew person. Um, so I'm offering like a different perspective and I have like no idea if this will speak to like people who, did grow up in Southeast Asia as a Gaginang or something at Mm -hmm. all. Um, So it's, I, I'm definitely not planning on writing anything else anytime soon (laughs) and take a little break from that. But um, yeah, I, I actually fell in love with like designing like the plates through this process. That's so interesting. Yeah. And it kind of sent me down this other rabbit hole of like looking into the history of like Chinese ceramics and chinoiserie and just the tradition of, um, yeah, Chinese design and art. And so I'm, I'd love to like pursue that more going forward in the immediate future. Yeah. Um, I feel like there, it's definitely an audience for people who would be interested in buying your plates, like especially local artisans in LA. I feel like there's a great celebration of it. There's like LA County store, which just sells, um, local artists, um, yeah, so work. I've, like, done, like, um, a renegade craft fair so oh, far because cool. um, I, you know, only actually launched this collection, like, a few months ago because it took so long to actually produce. Sure. Um, but, mean, yeah, I'm doing, like, a few other, like, holiday market-type things coming up. Um, cool. But, yeah, I'd love to also get it into some stores in the future. Sure. This is so awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank this you was, for coming. And thank you for thank our you book. Guys. So. You oh, are so fascinating. Yeah. I could talk to you all day. Oh my gosh, you guys are amazing. Yeah, I love this, that yeah. you're like building up this whole community of women and like, <laughs> yeah, oh, doing creating, what we can. You yeah, know creating what, I mean. what you want to see. Yeah, yeah. I love yeah. that. You guys are inspirational. Oh, oh thank Ditto. you. Right back at you. Uh, now make me have... some food. <laughs> <laughs> We're having lunch right now. That's where we got to go. Um, we will have uh, all of Diana's uh, book info for everybody on our uh, Instagram page and links to be able to buy plates and check them out and and thank you so much for being on our show thank you